The Talking Point on SAFM. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. It is nine minutes after 10 a.m. You're listening to The Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for tuning in. About two days ago, I listened to a fascinating conversation uh, by Chabak Kleber on uh, Living Redefined uh, here on SAFM. And she was in, in a conversation with a panel of really intriguing and interesting people about protest culture in South Africa, the use of protest and other means of expressing discontent. Uh, such as petitions, for instance. How do we make that? What's the role that petitions have in our uh, democratic toolbox as a means of protesting, for instance, and whether or not they're effective as a means of protest? And it, it, it was a truly fascinating conversation and really how protest culture has shifted over the years. If you look at, for instance, the protest culture coming out of the roads must fall, fees must fall, just out of the fallest movement, for instance. Contrasting that with service delivery protest and and especially on issues where there's national discontent. And, and, and I found it fascinating. But there's an angle around protest that is an often underexplored part of it. And that is violence and its place in protest culture in South Africa. In fact, the scholarship on violence uh, is vastly different as far as the discursive nature of it is concerned. There are political scholars that recognize the use of violence as a necessary and often useful tool in protest. And then there are some where that just blatantly disagree with it. I recall a very interesting and specific debate a few years ago between um, Karima Brown and Prince Mashele uh, uh, against um, uh, um, Buiseni uh, Ndlozi of the EFF where Mbuyuseni made the argument that violence has a place in protest. And often violence is not as initial means of agitation, but is in itself a response to existential violence and often used in self-defense. He argues that poverty, for instance, is in itself a violent state of being and that the use of violence in protest is merely but a self-defense against the violence of everyday lived conditions of poor black uh, South Africans. And I thought that was interesting. And, 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 and there, was, there was a lot of arguments around what violence in protest really is, how it manifests, uh, and whether or not it truly is being used as a means of self-defense, uh, especially when protests turn violent. I, I raised this, 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 uh, you know, this context uh, as part of this dialectic around protest to highlight that there are a number of protests happening right now. But a few days ago, I don't know if, you've, if, if you followed this in the news, but there was a mayor whose house was burned, whose mom's house was burned, down to the ground, by angry residents in the area. And it, 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 it was a sore sight to witness. Right? This mayor then put out a statement um, and says, even the water treatment plant in Paris was also vandalized um, by these, by these uh, protesters in Tumaole, in addition to his mom's house being burned down. And there's a culture in South Africa, a, almost a unique one, of the use of fire, in particular of burning things, during protests. Another country where there are often violent protests, routinely so, that I can think of, is France. France has a lot of violent protests, right? But they don't use fire there. In South Africa, we like to burn. Burning signifies something. I'm not sure whether something about our uh, psychosocial makeup 
where fire is just an appealing tool in, in, in the use of violence. But violence has a long history in South Africa's culture, specifically our political and protest culture. And to unpack this for us is Dr. Trevor Nguyen, who's the director of, uh, uh, of the Center of Sociological Research and Practice at the University of Johannesburg, and also Eldred de Klerk, who's a senior associate with the African Center for Security and Intelligence Praxis. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Really, really do appreciate it. You can also be a part of this conversation. 86 Dr. Nguyen, I want to start with you. And, and, and maybe, again, coming out of my introduction, have a reflection on this. The use of violence in protest South Africa is not a new phenomenon. In fact, it was quite a useful and oftenly used tool during apartheid. Similarly, it has once again re-emerged into South Africa's political life, especially with great uh, significance in the last 15 years or so in protest culture. Has it historically been a useful political tool before we come to its legitimacy and morality? Yes, thank you for having me, Oliver, and to your listeners. Yeah, just talking about the fire, for example, if you think that the American civil rights movement, that is the African-Americans striving for their rights in the 60s, there's this famous uh, line, Ben, baby, Ben. So they're painting things down at was California, everywhere. Yeah. So, so fire featured quite a lot. There's even that song by Bob Marley, burning and looting tonight. So, you know, when when the oppressed and exploited, and as you know, the nature of our system, capitalism, it is mostly black people. Yeah, they use various means to fight back, to express themselves, their anger. And fire does come in, and violence does come in. This is not to say, you know, violence and fire is something people approve of, mm. but it's a speak of, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting that you raised that 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 history around its its place, for instance, in uh, the West Indies, in in in, in America. Um, and, and, and how even popular culture at the, at the time captured it as, as part of the culture of the time, because it's, it's quite similar in South Africa. Uh, Eldred, I want to bring you in. Um, violence, again, is, 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 is a commonly used tool. Has it proven to be effective before we get to its uh, security risk, its legitimacy and credibility? Well, as, as you both agreed, and I think we'll all agree that violence is a tool, and yet at the same time it's a symptom. Violence in itself does not address the structural, systemic, um, institutional, nor cultural aspects of people's oppression or continued impoverishment. Violence, though, and burning in particular, does tend to cleanse. It, it's a very definite manifestation of people's anger and discontent. But it also is a symbol of their disaffection, the fact that we continue to treat citizens as if they're passive recipients of decision-making by public service officials and public representatives. So it doesn't address issues of governance, though in the moment it's a very strong symbolic and actual tool and symbol of discontent. Does the symbolism matter? Of course it matters, because if people have nothing else but symbolism to go on, and 
a feel-good feeling that they somehow achieved something that maybe in destroying everything. And remember, this is fueled also by a pervasive belief that you are not taken seriously unless you threaten violence or go over to actual violence. The sad part of it is that ostensible public protest has met by state-sponsored violence, namely the police coming in and violently disrupting public protest. So violence begets violence. At the same time, violence is a symbol of my frustration, and it simply sends a message to me that I have some agency, I have some ability to make a decision, even if it's an entirely horrible one, Would you would you say that the vast majority of violence in protest that we see in South Africa is often as a response to the state's monopoly on violence and its use in violence uh, in in, in trying to quell uh, discontent and protest? Or do you think that protesters protesters more increasingly use (laughs) violence as a point of first instance? It's probably a combination of both. Yet what we're dealing with is wicked problems. There ain't no easy solution um, and there ain't no easy explanations. However, we do see a state without a strategy. So frustration is likely to to increase and violence is likely to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Do you want to reflect on that, uh, uh, Dr. Ngwane? Do we, the use of violence, is it often as, as primarily a response to the state's monopoly on violence or is it increasingly used as a, as a point of first instance by discontent protesters? Yeah, no, I agree with, the, with my colleague there, especially about causes and symptoms. Now, that point, you raised it, Oliver, about the state's monopoly of violence. You know, from a Marxist point of view, that just reflects the fact that we live in a class society. You know, that there is power inequality, that they are exploited and exploited. In other words, for the vast major- for the majority of people, they are finding themselves in a bad place, you know, unemployment, poverty. So, if, you know, what we call democracy or let's say bourgeois democracy, liberal democracy, is not really normal. It's not something good for the mass. They don't experience it as a good thing. They're always pushing back, pushing the envelope to get something better out of it. So, you know, if the police are standing on the side of the state, uh, you know, uh, under the glorious, self-righteous rule of law, thinking that they are supervising and managing and controlling and securing a just situation, that's not true, you know, in terms of the experience of ordinary people. So you get flashes of violence, disruption, even revolution, because people say, hey, no, enough is enough. This is not working for me. Mm. So I think there are really big underlying structural issues which you mentioned, which underlie, you know, the violence you see in everyday protests. Mm-hmm. Is it useful, uh, Trevor, for us in this conversation to include and define uh, poverty and the conditions of poverty as a state of violence itself? Yeah, we can do that. You know, there is a, a whole school of thought, especially the woke people, you know. For them, everything is violent, you know. The way you speak to me, microaggressions of racism. But of course, you know, for the sake of uh, a sensible discussion, we have to distinguish between physical violence and other forms of violence. But certainly, you know, there is something you can call structural violence. So if a child dies because there is no medicine, 
it is uh, it is violent. You know, a shared fire killed people because uh, you know there are no proper homes. You know, someone dies because there is no police to fight crime, so they get shot and left in the street. It's violent. So yes, there is uh, actual violence. A violence built in into the system, which actually uh, is the underlying factor behind all the social problems. Let's get to the normative part of this conversation. Um, Aldred, is is it fair, and you make the argument that violence begets violence, and that, that really is just a natural order of things often, is it then justified to use violence as a means of self-defense if you're a protester and the conditions you find yourself living under are in itself innately violent? It may, it may seem justified in the moment. Like I said, violence doesn't address the conversation going forward because what we see in a fragile state like South Africa, and I'm going to use that that word, I'm not going to call it a failed state, I'm going to call the fact that we're fragile and vulnerable, Yeah, is that is what happens between the incidences of violence. This is where our public officials seem to be betraying the public trust because there's no public leadership on the broad issues that we all talk about. Nothing seems to happen between one incident of violence and another incident. One Mbizo, um, one Lakota. We don't have an ongoing and continued engagement with our citizens who are insightful, resourceful individuals who could be put to work and could understand the dignity of being involved in making decisions that affect their lives and changing the material circumstances. We still have a government and a public service that treats you and I as if we public, sorry, as if we passive recipients of service and that we should abdicate responsibility and decisions for us to them. And yet they fail to make decisions that seemingly is in my, my favor. And they're failing to make, more importantly, they're failing to make decisions that involve me. So violence is not going to get us there. Yet in the moment, I think, like we all agree, violence seems to have some sort of utility and expediency. Yeah. If, if, if we can agree that it has some sort of utility and expediency and often does get the most disenfranchised and the most vulnerable listened to, and often they feel that that's the only time they get listened to and seen, can we then condemn it? I wouldn't. Um, that's the difficult part. And, and this is not a moral argument to me. I, I think it's, it's, it's a very hard one because, you know, the other day I was listening to a song and I was thinking about Aluta Continua because the struggle does continue. Mm. The material circumstances and dignity of our South African citizens have not been, have not been improved ostensibly. And, and more importantly, we haven't restored the dignity of a nation. We haven't also healed our people. So we have a deep, deeply traumatized psyche and we have a nation that in fact has been brutalized and almost needs to be healed whether getting through this horrible period of ongoing violence is going to be part of that healing process so there needs to be parallel processes of engagement of healing of putting our people to work of understanding how budgets are spent and it needs to be spent to the the benefit of all South African people so it's a very difficult thing for yeah. me to sit here and intellectualize and condemn violence when people feel they have no other option. Yeah. Dr. Ngwane, um, to what extent is vi- violence uh, you know, condemnable and morally impunable, and should we then vocalize that? Yeah, well, I agree with um, you know, my colleague, Aldrin. Uh, so we cannot 
sit on a moral high ground, high horse, and condemn violence, you know. Mm. Uh, uh, If you condemn it, you would have to quickly add, we also condemn sexual violence and the poverty, you know, which begets it, so to speak. But, um, you know, to be honest, um, you know, the the system, you know, the oppression and exploitation is based on a violent system. You see now, South Africa, you know, is a capitalist society, you know. Capitalism takes various forms throughout the world, but at the heart of it, they exploit and exploited. Unfortunately for us, we've got what I can call racial capitalism. So the injustice, you know, overlaid on colonialism. So, in a way, we have a neo-colonial capitalist state. We still have got colonial ideas, colonial forms of policing, racist attitudes towards protests. So that's all that is facing the life of ordinary people. Remember, protest is legitimate, you know? Mm-hmm. You, have to, you have to express your, your grievance. You know, you have to cry out, can you see? But uh, the response sometimes you know, has got the baggage of the past, of the past, mm. being blamed, being victimized, being scapegoated, you know. Sometimes it takes, it takes a racial rule. Sometimes it's just simply un, undemocratic. You know, you are, you are rocking the boat. You know, you are ungrateful. So there are all those things which we have to really face. But ultimately, it's a system which needs to change. So we believe we live in a democracy. Yes, we live in a democracy, but it's a capitalist democracy. It's a limited, you know, democracy. It doesn't allow ordinary people the voice, you know, the power, you know, the benefit which it promises. So that yeah. is the key problem. Yeah, yeah. Aldred, um, how much of our contemporary use of violence in protest can be linked and is rooted in our history of violence in liberation struggle. I ask that uh, because if you contrast other oppressed, and I'm actually oppressive regimes, uh, such as Zimbabwe, for instance, there's great discontent there for good reason. But their violence, their protests often aren't violent. In fact, often are quickly muted by the state and its monopoly on violence. And there's a great uh, pes- uh, you know, passiveness by Zimbabweans in Zimbabwe, for instance, as far as protest is concerned, because for them, protest means the almost absolute potential loss of life uh, if you if you dare step out into the street. Whereas in South Africa, we, we have a sense that we can protest and may live to see the next day. I'm not sure about that, um, because at the end of the day, when the pro-democracy forces decided to form an armed wound and augment and supplement our protests um, and call for sanctions and internal dialogue with violence, that was not an easy decision to make. Mm. That was a decision made saying we need to up the ante. That is a decision made that said we need to start taking some control over our destiny because nobody's listening. So there's no easy decision to go over to violence. And there's no saying, there might be the belief and the hope that I might come back from a peaceful protest with my life intact, unscarred or uninjured. That is not necessarily guaranteed. 
So I don't think that, and I know for myself, having thrown stones and run to the gate and done all the other things that we were doing, like most of us in this conversation, that was always worrying. As much as it seemed exciting in the moment and it seems to be a, 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 an element of risk-taking and, and a sense of adventure, the fact that somebody next to you gets shot, the fact that you're carrying a dead body like we did in Katlehong or we did in Alexander Township, because we've got to remember that 1990 to 1994 was some of the most bloodiest period in our country's history. But we didn't get to the place we are today, which is nowhere near where we should be without blood being spilled. So I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning unless you're an agent provocateur, unless you have some sort of other political criminal or other agenda. Can you can you, you link today's people as a common fodder? Can you can you can you link today's use of protest violence to our historical context? Yes, I I, I would think yes, because we as 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 already has been said, we don't have the democracy we we have. We still don't have the systems in place that serve most of our, um, South Africa's people. And we still don't have the kind of public governance that we've demanded, where you and I are sitting around the table where decisions are that made that 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 affects our lives, and we still don't have a, a social welfare net. We still don't have a general public health institution, and we still don't have free education, and we still don't have utility of the land that feeds all of South Africa's people. So we're nowhere near having achieved either the Freedom Charter or our constitutional imperatives. Eldred so the struggle continues. And- Aldred Klerk and Dr. Trevor Nguyen in conversation with me. Give us a call, 86 0 What's your contribution or question to this conversation? A deeply important conversation. On the other side of this, I want to distinguish between violence in its ordinary sense and civil disobedience, perhaps in its non-violent sense, as a means of protest and displaying discontent. But before we get there, it's half past 10. Let's take your nude headlines with Luyanda Maume. The Talking Point on SAFM, weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. Give us a call if you'd like to be a part of this conversation. If you have a comment or a question to contribute, I'm in conversation with Dr. Trevor Nguane, the director at the Center for Sociological Research and Practice at the University of Johannesburg. I'm also in conversation with Aldrit de Klerk, senior associate with the African Center for Security and Intelligence Praxis. 086-000-2032, that is the number to dial. Let's go to Sinki in uh, Zebediela. Sinki, good morning. Sinki? How are you, Oliver? I'm well, I'm well. There we go. I can hear you. Go ahead. Very good. Yes, I believe that uh, uh, violence in protest is good, but because we are trying to express how angry we are, but we have to choose where we express that violence. Okay. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yes. uh, Remember, uh, if if we are expressing violence at the hospital, then we're going to disrupt the lives of our people. So it's better to express that violence mainly at the municipality where we, we want our mayor to go or at the union building where we want our president to go, not at all places we can express that violence. Do, do you think there should be a limitation to even where you think the violence can be expressed? Do you think there should be a limitation to where people take it, uh, to the extent to which people take it? For instance, burning down the house of the mayor's mom, for instance. Do you think that's a justifiable and, and, and a credible use of, of, of violence in protest? 
Yes, I think so, Oliver, because remember, before we go to protest, we plan it and we, we, we sit together and we discuss that we know we are going to protest because we are angry with the, uh, the house of the mayor or whatever. It comes from our mind. We have to apply our minds before. So we cannot just go and disrupt the hospital because we are angry with the hospital manager. So whichever way we can uh, lose the lives of our, uh, our fellow uh, brothers and sisters. So we have to choose where to, to cause the violence first because we cannot compare this time with the apartheid era because that time they did not listen at all. They discriminated us. But for these days, we have to choose and plan where to destroy because we know we can destroy a certain building, but we can no longer have it anymore. So yeah. what I'm trying to say is that we have to choose where to, to destroy or where to cause a violent tool. Yeah. Sinki, thank you so much for that. Really, really appreciate it. Sinki raises, uh, Dr. Trevor Nguane, raises an interesting argument there around the contrast between our democratic dispensation against apartheid. He says under apartheid, they blatantly did not listen to uh, black South Africans. By law, they empowered themselves to do that. But if you compare it to democracy, it's not quite the same. Can I add to that and say that South Africans often subvert other processes and platforms, such as parliament, such as attending council meetings, uh, such as petitions, uh, as means of engaging the state um, and and opt for protest and often then violent protest as a means of engaging the state. In that instance, then, should there not be a distinction drawn and say, well, but we are a democratic state with a, a vastly sophisticated democratic infrastructure where you can write a letter to parliament, you can make a public appearance at a council meeting and all of these sorts of things. Utilize those engagement tools. Yeah, it's a, it's a fair comment, but thank you uh, and, and, and yourself, Oliver. So the real question is, uh, you know, the people are angry. Uh, they're having a hard time. So the question is, where do we take the anger? Can you see? What do we do with it? Uh, you know, do we just uh, shoot anything in sight, using a shotgun, anything which, you know, happens to be somewhere get hurt? Or do we, as I think it suggests, sit down and work out what is our target? Where is the point to hit? Because in a way, it's a class war. So you're finding you know, points where the enemy is weak or points where you can make the biggest advance, you know. So protest is about political choices, it's about strategy, it's about tactics. Of course, you know, oh, you know, the, the general sitting in their, you know, a planning room somewhere, you know, at headquarters, they don't know what each soldier, each captain, platoon leader will do. You know, there'll be problems, there'll be lack of discipline, cowardice, uh, adventurism. So protests like that, you know, the, the life of the people, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, a life of war because mm. everything is a problem, you know. Water, electricity, crime, housing, healthcare, education, you know. So when you wake up, you are poor, uh, you know, working class, unemployed, in a shed, no water, or the water is there, it's dirty. So, you know, for you, it, it, it's a real strategy, you know, it's, mm, it's a war. Mm. Yeah, so, so you know, those tactics, yeah. how you respond, it's a political choice. Yeah. Aldred, uh, to, to that point, do you think it is then important and useful to distinguish between organized, targeted violence versus sporadic, uncontrolled, uh, you know, spontaneous and often impulsive use of violence in protest? 
Absolutely. Um, however, as July 2022 has shown, is that most of our communities are power, ke- are powder kegs. Um, and we can exploit the fragility of the state and we can also harness the anger and frustration of our communities and use that in a very targeted way, as was done in July 2022. What we're missing, I think, also part of this, and, and I think your caller made a useful distinction, we use violence when we think we can get an immediate return. Some of the longer-term things, the structural, systemic, institutional um, stuff that we're talking about, stuff that, that people may talk about long-term development that, has, that needs to start in the short term, we forget that. Um, we, we can't defer it to the longer term. We need to start it now. And that involves the conversation of people on the ground um, in everyday planning and working. We seem to not be honest with our citizens. We seem to want to listen to them. We seem to not think that they can understand budget and finances and processes, and we throw consultants at them. There's a lack of honesty and there's a lack of information in the public governance sphere. So part of our, our people's frustration is that we don't know what's done, what's done with the money at a local government mm. um, uh, level. We don't understand why a promise has not been met. We just see the promise has not been met. And nobody's taken us into the, in and saying to us, this is why it's hard to achieve the, this particular outcome at, at this particular time. So that lack of public information, that lack of public governance will continue to see finance being used to try to, if nothing else, be listened to and secondly, solicit and get some answers to questions that we might have. Mm. Give us a call, 86 Colin in Cape Town and Katlaro in the Val. I'll be coming to you very, very shortly. Let's take a quick break. Conversations that you connect with and react to. SAFM. Give us a call, 86 if you'd like to contribute to the conversation. Colin in Cape Town, good morning. Morning, Oliver. Morning to your guests. You know, I understand the perfect days of demonstrations and those things. There was a cause for it. But after 1994, with democracy, one word thought, now we'll settle down and the country will come and start getting better and service delivery and things like that. Now, what I cannot understand is, if I've got a problem with SARS, I won't go to ESCOM. I've got a problem with delivery service, I go to the municipality and the councils and those people. Go to them and demonstrate in front, even if it takes a week sleeping outside there. Let them listen to you. But now we've got a culture. We go onto the highways and byways and roads, burning tires, doing this, stoning innocent people's vehicles. It's got nothing to do and burning buses and things like that, which is uncalled for. When I call for a demonstration like that, and I heard your one guy saying, we plan, strategize what we're going to do tomorrow and things like that. But 90% of those demonstrations get out of hand and become so violent that the innocent people that even, don't even live in the area are riding paths on the highways. They get stoned, they get robbed, the, the trucks get looted. That, to me, is not a demonstration. That is criminality. And I'm telling you, the sooner this government wakes up and Cyril Ramaphosa must have urgent meetings with these 
municipalities and councillors who aren't paying ESCOM. Yeah. They are stealing the people's money and things like that. That is why we've got this problems because we've got corruption, carrying employment in our municipalities. Thank, Thank you so much, much for your call. Appreciate it. Right. Going to leave it there. Colin calling us from Cape Town. Eldred, uh, I appreciate that Colin calls it violence uh, and criminality, calls the violence in, in, in relation, he calls it criminality. Here's why. Because I want to introduce the element of civil disobedience. Civil disobedience, by definition, is taking the law into your own hands for the greater good, right? Assuming that there's a moral fight worth fighting. We've already established oftentimes there is a moral fight worth fighting. It's disenfranchised people fighting to be heard, fighting to be seen, and fighting to be taken serious. Fighting to have access to basic things such as water, electricity, healthcare, whatever the case may be. There's a plethora of issues in South Africa that we're often uh, at any given time denied of. Um, and so there is a moral fight to be fought. And so the violent use in protest uh, can often be seen and should be identified as a means of civil disobedience. The use of civil disobedience has a word clout association that is more righteous than that of just saying violent protest, right? When we call it civil disobedience, is that a useful uh, categorization in the political discourse? Yes, it is. What it does show is that there is something to be disobedient about, and that is the systemic failure that we all spoke about. Most violence and protests, we tend to put suitcase concepts like service delivery protests, and Colin is right. Each protest is different. It has different manifestations and has different motives, and there are different reasons for the protest. So it's not helpful for us to simply use blanket terms like service delivery. It's absolutely right. The target of each may also be different. Civil disobedience simply says is that what we've done is saying we have the citizens who said this situation is untenable, enough is enough, and we will organize, plan, and mobilize to, to ensure that we disrupt the system and that we change it for the better and for all the good of everyone. So that does tend to put a different spin on it. I, I think that's important. But it also tends to make sure that we understand what the steps are that needs to go accompany civil disobedience rather than just violent protest. Yeah. Katlejo in the Val, good morning. Yeah, it. I'm fantastic. Go ahead. Look, I'm in agreement with, uh, I just forgot his name. I just forgot his name. It slipped my mind. But one of the guests there, uh, that uh, part of the challenge is that uh, our country, like the rest of the African continent, uh, is a neo-colonial settler state, which is capitalist. Yeah, in Trevor, Trevor made that argument. Mm. Yes, yes. So I wanted to say, maybe I, I also want to say I'm one of those who mm. subscribes to the idea of an anti-black world uh, that is violent. And if you look at the stats, you realize that if you look at, for instance, the continents in the world and the various regions in the world, you'll find that uh, black people's population is decreasing instead of increasing, if not stagnant. Uh, so it, it speaks to us in what I, what I, I, I describe as systematic genocide. Uh, if, if, if Africans in particular do not respond in a very radical way uh, to this violent uh, world that seeks to reduce uh, the existence of Africans to that of paupers and nothing else, uh, I think we are moving towards a situation where uh, we, uh, in the same way that there was genocide in America and that red Indians have become a tourist attraction, 
we will get to that point if you look at global politics and where we are globally. So I'm saying, but also maybe the other point I just wanted to make was to say, uh, you know, there's what I call psychological violence. Uh, African people are psychologically violated daily uh, because of the institutions uh, of colonialism that continue to exist. So, and the legacy of colonialism. So, so there is what I call a, a, a psychological violence that violates Africans daily. Africans are daily violated psychologically, uh, not only in South Africa, but globally, uh, because of the narratives, the representation, and so on and so forth. So the the, the aspect of psychological violence is very important, and it requires yeah. a cultural approach, yeah. that uh, a cultural uh, a resistance to this psychological violence. So you would require, uh, uh, you know, propaganda on the part of those who are woke, so to speak, to uh, respond to the psychological violence that happens daily through our media and various other institutions. Katlego, thank you so much for your call. Really, really do appreciate it. Uh, uh, Trevor, I want to bring you back in and, and, and maybe make reference to an earlier caller, one of the first callers we had, uh, that, that, that said it's important that we call this what it is, criminality, because the use of violence here is a criminal act. I then brought in the element of civil disobedience as a means of, uh, you know, um, you know, making sense of it. But what do you think we should read into the criminality element of it? Because if we're going to be a country where we uphold the constitution, criminality must be met with criminal sanction. Yeah, but you know, um, without being flippant, you know, which is the bigger crime? Oliver, you know, a child dying because there is no medicine, but if we were to go down to the mall, you know, you'll find a pharmacy full of medicine. So this, this is the real problem. I think Kase was the last caller, you know, uh, said some uh, very strong things, but he does make the point that the overall situation is inimical to the interests of the oppressed, exploited, especially the black people, but, you know, also other kind of, of people suffer under the system. So I'll, I'll go along also with Al Reed's uh, emphasis. Well, I agree with you, civil disobedience does give it, you know, um, a kind of respectability. You know, I, I will, and so you don't just need to condemn it, but I'll go with um, uh, Al Reed's point about the need for a vision of alternative. So it's one thing to burn a tire now or to burn the, the mayor's mother's house, you know, poor poor old lady. But it's another to come up with solutions, you know, which address the structural injustices, inequalities. So that's what we need. But my last point here is that, remember, just as Kasheva was saying, this thing about psychological, you know, lack of education, survivalism, just struggling to feed your, your kids takes away the time and space to think clearly to have meetings to plan. So you can't always blame the protesters if they kind of lose it in that respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aldred, how much of the political language that we use in our political discourse, especially among political leaders, can be attributed, and I want to use the word instigating here, but it's not quite instigating, perhaps being a bedrock that motivates violence often. And that's not to say that political leaders, especially radical on the radical left, uh, are inspiring violence, but they often use very militant language 
to describe the political moment and how they speak into the political moment. And that militant language may well easily be interpreted or uh, received by somebody as, as, as a catalyst towards violence. Can we draw a link between that? Um, and Julius Malema is in court every other year on, on some or other criminal injuria charge, on some or other incitement charge. He appears before the South African Human Rights Commission every other month uh, on this, not just him, but many other other political actors, right? We may even bring in contemporary players such as Operation Dudula, uh, where the, the language that they use uh, in, in their political uh, positioning is often very militant, while not necessarily violent, but is militant. We should. Though we should look across the political spectrum, belittling the president, for example, belittling certain individuals, the kind of jokes and sarcasm and degrading comments made about our former president, his use of language, the way he looks, for example, all of this feeds a climate that's already fragile, that's already on the edge where we have appropriated violence, that's a standover from colonial oppression and slavery and apartheid. So we've appropriated violence as a weapon. We got to, I mean, you and I and you and others on this call probably speak more African languages than I do. We've never, we don't have a word for war in a number of the African languages from Yurt all the way to Ethiopia, which means that that is not part of our fabric and is not part of our culture. So we've always been uncomfortable with violence and we've always tend to use violence in self-defense not to conquer so so much so we've appropriated violence violence is now part of our dna it seems and it's going to take quite a doing for us to arrest that sorry who did who did we appropriate violence from i I would think from the colonial oppressors um from from the police from from the apartheid regime i know that was tried but i just needed you to say it (laughs) thank you thank you very much Uh, thanks for the clarity, Oliver. So at the end, we always we remain uncomfortable with violence. I got to say though that political or public representatives across the spectrum, from right to left and in the middle, should take responsibility for exercising public leadership on the issue, and for watching their language, especially when it comes to contentious situations. And it's too easy to exploit the moment for short-term, short-term political gain. However. This comes at a cost, maybe, of a life of somebody who takes you literally and, and seeks to exploit and seeks to use the moment and, and, and protest, for example. Do we incorrectly moralize civil disobedience when, we, when, for instance, it is perpetuated by black people on the one hand versus white people on the other hand? An example that's interesting for me that comes to mind is a few years ago, Helen Ziller tried to inspire a national civil disobedience uprising by asking South Africans to not pay their tax, for instance, to withhold paying taxes because they do not receive what they pay taxes for. That, for instance, is blatantly breaking the law. If you were to do that, it's an act of civil disobedience. There is a sense of righteousness to it, right? But no one called Helen Ziller a, a deranged, constitutional, delinquent, uh, who is deeply violent, uh, but Oftentimes, if if it were a black political actor, that may well have been the description. Absolutely. So who who actually um, perpetuates the dominant narratives around this, right? It's the well-heated, it's the Twitter, as those with access to the media. So stories like yours, it's actually not the norm. It's the exception. Because most of it amounts to sound bites. We don't have time to unpack the issues. And we don't bring disparate voices to bear on the same subject. 
So hats off to you and SAFM for actually doing that because we've got to take on this dominant narrative that black monkeys and darkies like you and I are violent by nature and that we cannot in any other way do what we do and we don't appreciate the fruits of democracy and we should be condemned for, 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 for protesting. That yeah. narrative belies all of what we've agreed to during this call that there are structural, systemic, systematic and ideological issues at play that continue to impoverish mm. and actually betray the citizens of this country. Yeah. Trevor, empathy and compassion isn't, uh, shouldn't be absent at least during moments of political discontent and, and, and protest, even where it is violent. I say that to ask this question. How then do you reconcile the you know, the blatant you know, the displacement that the mother of the Paris mayor is experiencing right now as a result of what was angry residents protesting and burning down her house, perhaps at the behest of the incompetence of what could be the mayor of Paris? What do you say to that mother today in, in a compassionate and empathetic way that calls on her at the same time to understand the political moment, to understand the violence on the other end, which is the lived and perpetual lived conditions of the residents. Yeah, you know, we we learned, you know, uh, through history, especially violent situations, especially like revolution. Sometimes it's hard uh, to distinguish between the perpetrator and the victim. You know, <laughs> you know. So, but uh, my heart goes to to that old lady. Just because, you know, probably she has got no power, no say over what her daughter does. She's old, you know, she's played her role. She's probably a country leader. That's why she influenced her, her child to, you know, take up community duties, politics. So she's probably a kind old lady who doesn't deserve what she got. So that's a fact. And then also... Very important in fighting, and I like Alfred's point and the pointed way, Oliver. You asked him, Where does the appropriation of violence come from? It comes from the oppressor, from a history. So people get brutalized historically. So, why fighting against current, present injustices, oppressions, exploitations, deprivation? We should keep in mind what kind of world we want to build. We want a world which is compassionate, which is caring. You know, we want a world where there is more hope than fear, where there is more hope than despair. So for me, that's very, it's key that, you know, we keep that alive. Perhaps it's hard when you are, to think about that when you are doing doing. Mm. But as, as the leadership, the organization, the politics should have a key component of that vision of a compassionate, caring society. Someone could have no, comrade, let's not burn this old lady's house because of one, two, three, you know. And maybe they'll just listen and say, no, let's not burn it. But no one did. So, you know, if I was there, I would maybe have said that, you know, yeah. Yeah. Dr. Trevor Nguane, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Dr. Nguane is the director of the Center for Sociological Research and Practice at the University of Johannesburg. Aldrit de Klerk, thank you so much for your time as well. Aldrit de Klerk is a senior associate uh, with African Center for Security and Intelligence Praxis. That brings us to the end of the conversation. I will say this before I go to the news. 
This has been an incredibly difficult and complex conversation to have. I can't imagine it was an, in, uh, an easy conversation to listen to either. And that's because our issues are difficult and complex issues. Our issues are not linear. And we need to become comfortable with uncomfortable conversations. It's 11 o'clock. Luanda Maume standing by with your news.